everyone. Welcome back to the Leadership Podcast, where we talk about the social responsibility of business leaders and try to figure out who is getting it right and who is stepping in it this week. I'm Caleb Gardner. And I'm Adrielle Parker. This week, we are going to start the new year off right, talking about some good economic news, closing the book on the Claudine Gay era at Harvard. We're going to talk about some new research on working from home trends and meeting limits. Yes, there is a such thing as too many meetings. Then we're going to deep dive into internet predictions for 2024 and talk about how more employees are covering slash hiding some aspect of themselves now more than ever. But first, Happy New Year, Adriel. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2024. We made it. (laughs) What's your your radar? Like, are you feeling good about 2024 so far coming into the new year strong? We're only a few days in, you know, (laughs) I'm feeling good right now. It was nice to like finally tie up loose ends from end of year. I have some goals mapped out despite the DEI space being very turbulent right now. I figured out my path. So even if it gets worse in the DEI space, I have a plan B, C, and D. <laughs> so there you go. I'm feeling okay <laughs> for now. We'll see. Ask you know me what? Honestly, we should all have a plan B, C, or D at this point. That's kind of how to. I feel. Yeah. I yeah. Ha- I was talking to someone recently about entrepreneurial risk and, oh, mm-hmm. you started your own company. You must be really comfortable with risk. And I was like, well, you know, half my friends have been laid off in the last five years at some point in their yeah. career. Starting your own company is just a different kind of risk. Exactly. So like, we're, exactly. All, we're all making it up as we go along. Absolutely. How are you feeling about 2024? I'm feeling good. I want to prioritize rest and living in the moment this year. That's kind of yeah. my goal. I feel like we've, we've reached a good point as a family and me as a career that I really enjoy the work I do, but work doesn't have to be everything. Right. You know? Right. Yeah, And so really trying to build in practices in my daily life that kind of reflect on what's going well and just kind of, you know, let go of the bullshit and enjoy everyday life a little bit. I feel that. I feel that. Yeah, I I fell off. I feel like this happens to a lot of people, obviously, because people have New Year's resolutions and it's like New Year, new me and getting back on your health game and all that. But classic. I, you know, had to start working out again because I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, I've got to get it together. I need to take my vitamins. So resetting on that and hoping that I stick to it, but giving myself grace this year if I yeah. fall off. So Same. I mean, yeah. you've got to. I feel like you don't stick to that kind of thing unless you give yourself grace when you yeah. fall off because then yeah. it just becomes a boomer bust cycle. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'm at the point, I think, in my life because I'm older. I won't say how much older. <laughs> that... exercise for me has to become like brushing my teeth you know Mm. it's just I got to do this to take care of myself or else my body's gonna get really upset at me yeah yeah so that's kind of how I'm looking at it no I feel that especially just being well I know both of us spend a lot of time at our desks and your body really gets stiff your shoulders everything so um, at your desk, working from home, barely mm-hmm, moving, mm-hmm. going from the bedroom to the desk and back again. Right. Oh, <laughs> That's the pattern you got to gotta look out for. Yep, yep, yep. Did uh, you get that? Sorry, deep cut from our last episode we did together. Did you get that treadmill desk? Not yet. I haven't decided. There have been so many mixed reviews. So we'll see. I'm, I'm just getting like the, I guess they call them walking pads, but I'm torn between a walking mm. pad and a stepper. 
because I see that there are benefits for both. So I'll the decide. The pad, is of... that just, it's kind of like a treadmill, but it's not motored? Like you can just walk on it at your leisure? So they have both. They have motored versions and they have manual versions. But the difference is it's just like the bottom portion of the treadmill. So there's no sort of railing or yep. stand on it. So you can just slide it under your desk because I already have a standing desk. So Yep, that's yeah, what I have. yeah, that's what I'm leaning towards. I think I I might get one that has an incline or something. I don't know. I've mm-hmm. been I've got a few on my list. So by Friday, I'm like, I'll make a choice. <laughs> You'll see me walking nice. by our next episode. Hopefully, <laughs> that's that's what I have, and it works pretty well. It works pretty well. Good. Again, you can't do all kinds of work. It's unrealistic to think you're going to be like sure writing an essay or doing some kind of deep sure. work while you're walking. I've found that, at least for myself, to not really work. But yeah, for some things, for kind of lighter mental effort things, it works really well. Makes sense. Makes sense. I've been seeing people on TikTok reading. I'm like, I don't know that I trust myself. I could not do that. I feel like I would get motion sick. (laughs) Right. Or you're like trying to get your eyes to focus on the page. Yeah. 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 I can't even text and walk. So I'm like, I can't chew gum and walk. So that's what I'm saying. Sounds disastrous. (laughs) (laughs) Let me not try that. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. All right, let's let's get into the week's news. And this is really the last few weeks news because of the yeah. holidays. We haven't covered off on, you know, specific things that have happened. But there have been a few pretty big stories. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we got to go back to a little bit ago and talk about the Times, New York Times suing OpenAI and Microsoft. That was kind of a big shot across the bow, which a lot of people kind of heralded as the end of AI having unlimited access to internet data. Basically, people are going to be throwing up walls all over the place if they couldn't get to an agreement with the New York Times, which they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. They they were working with OpenAI, basically trying to say, fine, take our data, but you're going to pay us for it. And they couldn't come to an agreement on the financial amount. So Times backed out of the deal, and they decided to sue OpenAI and Microsoft Mm -hmm. over the millions of articles from the New York Times that were used to train the open AI or right. uh, used to train chat GPT. Right, right. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just so, I don't even know what the word is. I mean, I just looking at New York Times and, and the paywall situation, it makes sense. They want to be paid. I mean, they need to be paid. I mean, they should be, yeah. They should be. That It's work. And I think there's failure on open AI's part to recognize that. So, and Microsoft because apparently they're part of this as well. So yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see. I mean, we've talked a lot about the need for some sort of oversight or regulation when it comes to, to generative AI. And so I think this is one of many steps that are going to be to come in terms of what is fair use for them to, to just use to teach their models and, and when should they be compensating companies or individuals. Yeah, totally. It makes me wonder how companies that traditionally have used basically this crawling of the web to Mm -hmm. power their business models, i.e. Google, are going to do about this kind of thing. If you already have access to kind of the world's data like Google does, does this, can they throw up the same kind of wall? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that I've heard some people talk who were kind of in the early days of uh, media when search was becoming really big that they should have done this to the search giants then. Like they should have thrown up the same kind of like legal barriers to Google crawling their website Mm -hmm. that they're doing with AI right now. I don't know if that would have been the smart move or not, but at least they they kind of seeded the ground back in the day. And I think they're trying not to seed the ground now. Absolutely. 
Good times. I mean, that's it's going to be a fascinating story this year about how the evolution of kind of the AI ecosystem and the players that are needed to make these AI ecosystems smart. Right, right. It also makes me think about, you know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about misinformation and disinformation. And that's honestly nothing new. So I think it's just we have more exposure and more access to things now. Um, yeah. So yeah, really curious to see where this goes. I think that it could actually change the ecosystem from being dominated by ChatGPT to being dominated by players that have a lot more of their own data to be able to train the models on. Mm -hmm. So if you think about Grok, which is the dumbest name run by maybe the (laughs) smartest dumb person on earth, Elon Musk, being able to be trained on Twitter data. Sure. Or again, Google being able to be trained on internet, you know, data that it already has. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that could make, at least from a research perspective, you know, a little bit of a competitive advantage. I still think, we talked about this last week, but I still think that the most interesting use cases for AI right now are research on your own data sets, you know, not necessarily the internet, but who knows. So do you expect New York Times to create some sort of tool that allows them some sort of generative AI tool. I mean, they did just, I think it was last month we mentioned that they hired the court's co-founder, Zach Seward, to be their, I guess, AI director, newsroom director. So I'm wondering if that's something that's in the works on their end. I don't know. This is a good question. I would imagine that they don't want to be left out of the AI generated research tools, right? Like they want to be sources, they want to have that traffic, they want to have that authority. Mm -hmm. But they just want to control how and when these tools get access to their data, which I think they should be able to. Absolutely. I just don't think we've got a lot of good models to date about how to do that well and make it both financially successful for your company. Mm -hmm. And you know, not be this like throttle to all of this traffic that could be revenue generating for you. Sure, sure. Yeah. So we'll see where it goes. Fascinating story to kick off our uh, AI storytelling, which I'm sure we're going to do a lot of this year. (laughs) No shortage. Speaking of, (laughs) yeah, speaking of X, did you know that X, formerly Twitter, is worth 71.5% less than when the so-called genius Elon Musk bought it in late 2022? (laughs) This is according to uh, Fidelity, a new Fidelity disclosure. Is anyone surprised by that? Is is anyone surprised by it? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all. We've talked a lot about how he sort of alienated advertisers and his rants that he goes on. I'm not surprised. I'm just not surprised. All the paywalling that exists on there and paying for verification and... It's it's just not Twitter. It's not what it used to be. It's not. I mean, I just I kind of imagine it as just Twitter's dead. You know, like yeah. the, the Twitter that I knew and loved back in the day is gone. Yeah, yeah. It's I don't know. It you know I still use Twitter X <laughs> because you know they're just people that I've followed over the years, and I think I've mentioned before I've curated my timeline, and it's it's just nice. The the folks are nice. The platform is not. <laughs> the folks are nice. The platform is not. I think yeah. the folks are increasingly not nice because well, of who is attracted to stay on that platform. Yes. The folks, I should say the folks I follow that I enjoy that are often yeah. informative. You know, Your I follow curated of, list yes, is yes, still nice. Exactly, I get that. Yeah, exactly. that makes sense. Yes. We're going to talk about uh, the future of X a little bit more in our in my deep dive today about okay. internet predictions for 2024. So let's 
hold that for that. But yes, I think if you if you still have your people there, yeah, then it can still be a nice place. But you kind of got to mute all the assholes. Oh yes, <laughs> that you do. <laughs> all right. What else? So we've. I think it broke yesterday as we're recording this that Clouding Gay has finally. I say finally because she's been in, under such fire for so long that I yeah. think we saw this coming but has officially resigned for, as president of Harvard. Mm-hmm. Tell me how you are processing this. Because on the one hand, did she mishandle the anti-Semitism on campus? Probably. But does she deserve to resign? I'm not convinced. How, what do you think? I oh, I have to take a deep sigh on this one. So if we go back <laughs> to that congressional hearing that she testified at, along with the other two uh, university presidents, one from MIT, one from UPenn, and from my perspective, and we talked about this a few episodes ago, they were poorly prepared. <laughs> I don't know who coached them, yep. who advised them. Their responses really. were not good at, at all. So I understand. But from my from what I've seen, the attacks against Claudine Gay have been significantly more intense than the other two. And the UPenn president resigned days after that congressional hearing. Right. MIT's, she's still there. However, now that Claudine Gay has resigned, I saw a few reports saying that they're starting to try to go after her to get her to resign as well. Yeah, she's going to be under pressure now. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's unfortunate to see. And then, you know, to me, it feels like she's been bullied, Dr. Claudine Gay. It feels like she's been bullied and, and to no end. I mean, there were... What what seems to have led to this resignation, this sudden resignation that just happened this week, were that there are some additional allegations against her about plagiarizing parts of her, I guess, dissertation to obtain her doctorate. And all of these allegations have come from a conservative media source in which no right. one has actually attached their name to it. And they've been relentless. And yeah. so it's just really interesting to see the contrast between this black woman versus these other two women who are not black, who did not experience the same attack and constant pressure, despite yeah. having very similar responses during that congressional hearing. So yeah, super frustrated. Is- I hope she's okay. I'll have to say, cause I-, I can't even imagine. And just following a lot of black women that are in academia, it's just the pressure's relentless. I, I used to think about going after a doctorate. There's no way in hell you can pay me enough now. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> Unless it's honorary. No, no. Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why that's a pain yeah. in the ass. But I'm also frustrated about the story because it's much like actually a lot of the coverage around Israel and Hamas and the war mm. and all of that and anti-Semitism in this country. It gets muddied so fast so about fast. where where the critiques are deserved versus where they're not. And I think mm-hmm. that her handling of that hearing and anti-Semitism on Harvard's campus, I think were both valid critiques. Mm-hmm. You could disagree with them. You could you could talk about the nuances. I do think it's a very nuanced issue, but I don't think that the criticism of that wasn't warranted. Right. But what's frustrating to me, to your point, is that not only are they targeting a black woman who remind me, isn't wasn't she like the first black woman mm-hmm. to to yep. run Harvard? I thought yep. so. Not only are they targeting the first black woman to run Harvard, but it's getting rolled up into this attack on diversity and inclusion in general. And the Republicans in Congress, especially Elise Stefanik, who's claiming credit for this and who was one of the ones who got the soundbite at the hearing, are basically using the hearings on anti-Semitism to go after diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what what the fuck are we doing? Like, it's yeah. 
it mentally they can kind of connect those dots and in the narrative they kind of connect those dots but it, it's pretty insidious mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you can you can tell what they're doing pretty oh, yeah. quickly oh yeah i mean the there's this whole push to get people to believe that dei is just about hiring and there's always this this talk about merit, merit-based hiring, merit-based hiring. And it's like they keep saying the same things over and over and how DEI is just focusing on checking a box and bringing someone in, a person of color. And almost always the conversation defaults to bringing a black person in. And so it's just really telling of how much ignorance there is out there and yet also how much power and pull certain people have despite them being so ignorant and not actually knowing what this work entails. But yeah, they're just piling this on to all of the other sort of anti-DEI sentiments. Um, and it's it's really frustrating. And I mean, we have data that's showing that it's unfortunately working. I mean, you know, there, jo- job postings, DEI job roles and postings dropped by 44% last year. So there have been tons of layoffs. Tech companies have made serious cuts to their DEI efforts, including large conglomerates like Google, Meta, some of them cutting their budgets up to 90%. And again, as long as you have people, you need DEI and it's so much more than hiring. And if you don't understand that, please seek to learn more because it's just, it's really unfortunate. And then, you know, of course, we've got folks like Elon Musk and other people who like to make their rounds and criticize DEI again without lacking education about it. So... Yeah, it's yeah, I'm I'm really upset that they chose to leverage her as part of this this whatever you want to call it. It it really pisses yeah. me off. Yeah. She got caught in the crosshairs basically. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. <sighs> anyway, just to kind of yeah. round out our news section, we had some good economic news in that holiday spending increased this mm-hmm. year. I think that was a little bit of a surprise. I feel like between that the stock market, and it was just an unpredictable economy in 2023. Everyone yeah. thought it was going to go worse than it did. Sure. So we'll see. People are kind of bullish on 2024, and you know the Fed has indicated that it's going to cut interest rates. Mm-hmm. So people are pretty excited about the economy going forward. Again, I'm I'm kind of holding my breath about what that means for the presidential election here in the U.S. Yeah. But things are looking pretty good from a macroeconomic perspective. We talked in our predictions episode last week that from a microeconomic or kind of daily lived experience of people, there's still lots to be unhappy about. So we'll see how that uh, starts to change that or if it starts to change that. Yep, absolutely. Meanwhile, let's talk about what is going on in offices. So (laughs) it's really fascinating to me Mm -hmm. to look at a lot of the kind of end of year roundups about return to office and work from home and This one from USA Today, I think, put it in pretty stark terms was 2023 was the year return to office died. Oh, goodness. That's so (laughs) dramatic. I love it. It's so (laughs) dramatic. And I think the reason for it, if you dig into the numbers, is that despite all of these really high profile return to office mandates. Yeah. The number of people who worked in an office actually dropped last year. Mm. So despite all these folks trying to force you back into the office, it actually went slightly in the opposite direction. Makes sense. So, I mean, it makes sense. But do you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about that predictions from CEOs that like everyone was going to be back into an office by 2025. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. And we we had a good laugh about it. Well, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't think it's going to surprise us that that actually 
Mm, not the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot, at least from the clients and the folks I worked with last year, there was a lot of pushback on some of those RTO policies. And I think what helped was that employees, and we've talked about this again, there's just like a lot more employee engagement and enablement now, and they're Mm -hmm. more willing to be vocal and to speak up. And I think the more employees share their perspectives and the more leaders listen to them, the more you can find sort of that middle ground and there can be a better balance because what works for one person just does not work for everyone else. And so I think leaders need to be mindful of that and the impact that your decisions, your choices have on your employees and their overall well-being. Because if you're forcing or trying to force them to do something that's not working for them, are they going to stay? Are they going to perform at the in the way that you know they're capable of? Are you going to lose money because they're just sitting there? Exactly. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> you know. The, the the mandates themselves and the policies are just so arbitrary. I mean, we've talked yeah. about it so many times. Yeah. It's just there are ways to get people back in the office and forcing them in in an arbitrary number of days is the worst possible way to do it. Right. Don't just look at really your competitors or other people in your industry and say, oh, they're doing this. Return office four days. No, look at your actual workplace. Consider the needs of your people. It's not going to be the same as others. Consider it team by team, department yeah. by department. Roll by roll even. Some people have to yeah. be there. Some don't, you know. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, there was new research that came out last month about a growing divide in terms of who gets to work from home that I think we should keep our eye on just in terms of the equity of work from home policies. Sure. The research on job postings found that remote work is far more common for higher paid roles Mm. or for roles that require more experience and for full-time work and for work that requires more education. So you can see where all this is pointing. People who are already making a lot more money and have a lot more flexibility are the ones that get a lot more money and a lot more flexibility. That's because nothing new. the ones who, yeah, exactly. Not surprising. No. Uh, the ones who get for work from home are, are the knowledge workers. Yeah. I mean, you know, the people who've got, who are working with their hands, who are in manufacturing, who are, for whatever reason, need to be in front of customers or hands on with the product. Sure. Just don't necessarily get the kind of flexibility that other folks who do more knowledge work, have more education, are already paid more in higher you know, management type roles Mm -hmm. get. Yep, absolutely. What are you deep diving on for us today, Adriel? So I want to follow up on some research that has been ongoing for the past decade. And it's about this idea called covering, this concept called covering, which is essentially when people hide some aspect of their identity. This, the initial research was published by Deloitte in partnership with NYU. And there's actually a professor and author, Kenji Yoshino, who has been really deep into this work for some some time now. But looking at how people cover or hide aspects of their identity in the workplace and how it impacts them. And so I want to just follow up on the most recent study about that concept. Fascinating to think about that in light of that research about who gets to work from home and why we want to be at home instead of in the office. Think about how little we have to cover. Yeah. As opposed to when we are in front of people and having to kind of play act professionalism in front of them. Absolutely. What are you bringing us today? I want to deep dive on a new report, um, basically like a roundup that NPR did on internet predictions for 2024. Okay. I was reading this and, and it just so matches a lot of the stories that we talked about in 2023. And I want to kind of run down that and chat with you about it. Because some of these, I think, 
I agree with and some I don't know if I do, which mm-hmm. is kind of a, an interesting place to start off talking about what the Internet's going to be like this year. And some of these I think you are going to love and not love. So I'm particularly <laughs> interested in talking to you about them. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uncover, uncovering for us, Adriel. <laughs> That's funny because the uh, the original research study was called Uncovering Talent. So 10 years nice. ago, Deloitte, which has this DEI Institute, which is trademarked, which I find very interesting, but, you know, capitalism. (laughs) (laughs) They, in combination with NYU School of Law's Meltzer Center of Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging, collaborated to work on the study to just essentially see how people sort of move around the workplace. So how are people... When it comes to authenticity, how much of, of or what percentage of employees are able to come in and just be their authentic, genuine selves versus how many are covering, which means just essentially hiding some aspect of their identity. And when they did this report back in 2013, they found that roughly 60% of employees are hiding some aspect of their identity. And this isn't specific to any gender or race or age group. This is across the board, roughly 60% of people are hiding some aspect of their identity. Um, And so they just, they've been, of course, you know, tracking this data over the past 10 years, they repeated it. And over the past 12 months, they found yet again, that some 60% have reported covering some aspect of their identity. And they've pulled from a pretty wide range of employees across the US across five different industries, you can visit Deloitte's website and, and download the report to get all of the details. But in their report, they're kind of defining the behaviors of covering into four categories. There's appearance-based covering. So, you know, if I hide, you know, my hair, for example, right? For those that can't see me, I have a head wrap on. So that could be considered covering. For me, it's just I didn't do my hair today. The second is what we call affiliation-based covering. So this is really concerns about, you know, behaviors that may be associated with an identity that we share with other groups, right? And that may carry negative stereotypes, for example, I as a black woman have faced, you know, and had I've I've certainly tone police myself in the past because I don't mm. want people to think I'm aggressive or I'm the angry black woman, right? So that's an affiliation based cover because it is tied to a common stereotype. There's also advocacy based covering. So when you're hiding that you advocate or that you support the interests of groups, so this could be tied to allyship and maybe, you know, at home you support whatever group but at work, you're afraid to admit that for whatever reason. And then there's also association-based covering, and it's when you are avoiding contact with other people of your group. And so, you know, I may go into an office. This has happened to me before where I've experienced this, where there's a small group of people that look like me, and then, you know, one or two people don't actually want to interact with the rest of us, right? And so those are the four categories, appearance-based, affiliation-based, advocacy-based, and association-based. And as they've done this research, they've realized that pretty much everyone covers or hides some aspect Mm -hmm. of their identity in order to sort of downplay some part of their identity to essentially just blend in. And that it's really interesting because it's like the complete opposite of what we're typically preaching when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion work and telling people to people to bring their full selves or their full, the full aspects of their identity. 
And there's, I think one of the interesting pieces is that people that are in non-dominant groups, and this is really not surprising, but people that are part of the, the minority in, in a variety of settings, whether that's talking about being you know, less represented in terms of gender or race or sexual orientation, those individuals report covering their identity more so than those belonging to majority or dominant groups. So again, not surprising. Again, this, this idea of covering is we're trying to just sort of fit in. We want to blend in. But that doesn't help us, right? The idea of diversity is that I can I can be my full self because when you are covering, when you're hiding some aspect of your identity, it is taking up brain power, right? Even if it's not a yep. conscious thing. And so that does take away from your ability to problem solve, to be creative, to do your job, <laughs> you know, at your full capacity. So, you know, it. I've had so many conversations, especially in 2023, I had this moment where I started questioning this word of belonging. What does it mean to belong? Why do we want to belong? And I also thought a lot about authenticity as well. And when it comes to belonging, if you asked me two years ago, I'd have been like, yeah, I want to make sure everyone feels like they belong here. But not every setting, not every workplace is going to make everyone feel as if they belong. And not everyone is going to feel comfortable uncovering themselves depending on who they're working with. And that should be okay, is my opinion. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Well, is it okay? That's kind of what I want to get at is, how do you go about letting people know it's okay not to cover? Or should we let people know it's okay not to cover? To your point about we don't need to know every single aspect of your identity. But I feel like it has to be, we don't, if you're not comfortable sharing, we don't need to know. But also, we need to make it an environment where you can share if you want to, Mm -hmm. right? Or you can like kind of live into your full identity where you are comfortable. Yep. It comes back to leadership, no surprise, right? As part (laughs) of the study, they also asked people about psychological safety and just feeling like their, their leaders are actually supporting and encouraging them to be their authentic selves. And roughly 50% of people believe that their team leaders are creating psychologically safe working environments. And they also recognize the importance of this, right? And so there is certainly a need for leaders to set that tone and to constantly reiterate that it's a safe space, right? And it's not just about saying, hey, this is a safe space, you can be yourself, but it also requires leaders to intervene, right? So if you notice things like someone being talked over whenever they are sharing their ideas and you notice that it's a pattern, you as a leader should be intervening to create space for those people that are being talked over. And you should also be making it clear that that's not acceptable because things like that are going to cause people to lose psychological safety and also trust in you as, as a leader. Often people conflate the two. When we talk about trust, we're usually talking about us one-on-one, our ability to trust and have faith in each other, our abilities to get things done, to show up, to follow through with whatever we say. When we talk about psychological safety, that's sort of like the next layer. It's it's a shared belief against a group or within a group, right? And so I believe that I am safe to take interpersonal risks. I can give you feedback without thinking that you're going to blow up or, you know, shut down, Mm -hmm. or I can admit that I made a mistake and know that my team is going to support me. And we're going to use that as a learning opportunity. And in this report, they share examples of how leaders can actually intervene and can reinforce the behaviors they want to see. Did you say that only 50% feel like their leaders create psychological safety for them? Mm -hmm. To uncover at work. Yes. 
Yeah, only 50%. But only 50%? Only like, 50%. That is, that is shaming, I feel like, for people in most workplaces. Only half feel like they have the kind of cover <laughs> from their leadership <laughs> to be able to be themselves. That's depressing to me. It is depressing, but it's not surprising because it goes back to the fact that we've transitioned leadership and really people management from this role in the past where people managers were were just supposed to come in and assign tasks to people and make sure people were getting their work done. Now leaders have more responsibility, or at least they should, in that they should be part of establishing and reinforcing the culture they want to see, which includes having a psychologically safe yeah. space. But a lot of organizations haven't invested in teaching people how to do that. And if you haven't experienced that, you wouldn't know as a leader how to create that for other people. Right. Oof. I mean, I, I definitely think this is should be a wake up call for people yeah. that I mean, not only in that we need to be intentional about where we can allow people again to kind of express their identity and like create that psychological safety for folks, but also it just reinforces what we've been saying a lot and what you say a ton, which is mm -hmm. that these issues affect all of us. Yeah. Equity is not something that's just for the marginalized folks or the my visual minorities. I, I love that they call out mental health issues. And if you're in a hyperproductive environment, you don't feel like you can talk about mental health issues. You know, there are a lot of these things that we cover about and to their point that all of us do to some extent that mm -hmm. people don't see. Right. And so this is not this is not something that is just for <laughs> just for the people who are in different different cultural communities than us. It's right. like all of us. It's across the board. Absolutely. The other thing that I wanted to touch on as it relates to leaders is that only 61% of workers believe that their team leaders genuinely desire their authenticity. Ooh. And that was pretty stark too to see. Because again, leaders are setting the tone. You are influencing the culture. And it's really... It, it actually, when you're not supporting and encouraging people to be their authentic selves, you're just contributing to covering. <laughs> so we're just perpetuating that yeah. behavior, right? I'll give yeah. you an example. I had a client recently who just started managing a team of women. He's a man. He just started managing a team that's primarily women. Most of these women have quite a bit of experience. And this is his first time managing a group of this size. And there was one woman in particular who is a woman of color. I don't know exactly how she identifies, but she's a woman of color. And she expressed to her manager and their HR person how she felt about a situation. And she was very direct about it. I was there. I witnessed it. Hmm. I didn't think there was anything wrong with how she expressed herself. She was direct. She didn't sugarcoat anything. She asked questions. Later on, I found out that his perception of this was that she was unprofessional and disrespectful. And he told her this. And when we had a follow-up conversation, she was like, this makes me not even want to speak up because, you know, how I delivered it wasn't acceptable. And I was told that other people agreed that there was something wrong with my tone. And I'm just like, I was so confused because, <laughs> from, from, again, from my perspective, I was like, I didn't see any, there was nothing disrespectful about it. It was just direct. Do you get that with everyone? No, because a lot of people fear speaking right. up to their leaders and they're not a, they're not in a space where they feel comfortable voicing their opinions. And so that was an example of this leader not wanting this person to be their authentic selves. 
and not acknowledging or embracing them as their authentic selves and also lacking cultural competency. But that's another story. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. I mean, I I think that in the conversations that we have about creating culture in Mm -hmm. our companies, Mm -hmm. about even about values, mm-hmm. right? And about oh, the kind of company we want to build. I think sometimes we unintentionally create monocultures that are in, implicitly and explicitly oppressive to certain types of personalities, to certain yes. cultural groups, to certain, you know what I mean? I think in that, in that, that pursuit of we've got to know what we're about mm-hmm. and what we value, which can come across as Things that aren't on their surface bad, like we want to be a hardworking workforce, we want to be productive, we want to value integrity, we want right. to value communication and kindness to each other. Right. Well, if we say things like we want to value communication and kindness and collaboration, and then someone gives some really direct feedback, mm-hmm. it can come across as, oh, that wasn't collaborative. Right, right. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> All of a sudden, we can weaponize those values yep. in ways that we don't realize we're doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a it's a very layered, layered concept. I really encourage people to check out this report. I mean, it's kind of long. It's 29 pages. But what's really cool about it is that they actually give some practical examples of what covering looks like in practice. And again, I know people are going to default to thinking about race and ethnicity and gender. But they also give some examples of like immigrant status, right? So one of the common coverings is like people trying to mask their, their accent, right? Which I can't even... How exhausting to have to mask your accent. So exhausting. Right. Or, you know, if, you know, someone's pregnant, they're like, one of the examples was they wore loose clothing because they didn't want people to start judging them or to start making assessments. So, again, this idea of covering comes in a lot of different forms. And there are also some exercises in this report that can help people start to assess and um, identify. And when I say people, I'm talking to you all, leaders. This can help you assess and start to identify ways to reduce covering. You're not going to completely eliminate it. It's not possible. But you can continue to reinforce the fact that people are welcome to be their authentic selves and to speak up and to establish that psychological safety. I think that push-pull between leadership, cultural creation, and individual authenticity is something that we are going to see come to a head in the next few years. Mm -hmm. I think it already is with the work-from-home debate. Yeah, yeah. Right? That's if you think about that, that's like a a very specific example of people being like, no, individually, I want to not have to cover. I want flexibility in my work life. Right. But corporately together, we need opportunities for collaboration and work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like how we manage that as leaders is something we have to keep our eye on. I don't think a lot of leaders do intentionally. I think they only see it as creating the corporate culture and everyone has to kind of sacrifice their individual identity for the sake of the corporate culture. Absolutely. There has to be balance always, or there should be. 29 pages. This is the kind of thing Adrielle stays up late at night reading. She's like falling asleep. This is why I need that that walking pad so I can just (laughs) walking. I'll hold onto my desk so I don't like trip over myself. But yeah. (laughs) That sounds terrible. That sounds terrible, to be honest. Also, uh, read out loud plugins on Chrome. Fantastic. Just say it. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Love it. All right. Should we get into internet predictions for this coming year? Let's talk about it. I've been thinking about this a lot because I'm a nerd and I think about how the internet affects society and blah, blah, blah all the time ever (laughs) since, you know, my entire career. So I thought this list that came out from NPR is actually pretty interesting. And some things here, 
that I definitely would expect, but also some things that I wouldn't. So it's good mm. conversation fodder. So I'm just going to go through each of these predictions one by one. And basically, we'll link to this in the show notes, obviously, but they consulted with several internet, quote, unquote, quote, internet experts, which is a funny thing to me, because like, okay. the internet is everything and nothing at this point. But I guess if you think <laughs> about where society and technology interact, I think, mm-hmm. is how you can think about these trends. So let's just go through these one-on-one. So the number one prediction, (laughs) which is not on my radar, but I think totally makes sense. More people will be in intimate relationships with AI chatbots. Huh. (laughs) I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) Right? I did not see that (laughs) one You ever had an intimate relationship with a chatbot, Adriel? uh, That's something. I mean, it makes sense, right? There are people in relationships with dolls, so... Now you're adding the ability to talk to something, not someone, but something. And I think also I've seen a lot of tools that center around mental health. So using AI as sort of like like your personal therapist. I've also seen it be used for coaching, business coaching, personal coaching, fitness coaching. So it makes sense. It makes sense. Yep. Are you familiar with the story of Eliza? No. This is not a new phenomenon. In 1967, actually between 1964 and 1967, at MIT, a researcher developed a chatbot basically mm-hmm. called Eliza. Okay. And it was created to explore communication between humans and machines. And it simulated conversations using pattern matching, not unlike large language models do now, obviously the ones that now do it much more sophisticated. But they found running this that people were very willing to be like very trusting with information to Eliza and Eliza's human like responses actually created a lot of trust in the relationship between who the chatbot interacted with. We've known about this phenomenon of be human enough and Mm -hmm. I will start to trust you. Sure. For a long time since the 1960s. But it's not, it's fascinating to me that it's just kind of now surging in popular, you know, popularity because of ChatGPT. Sure. But even before ChatGPT, have you ever heard of Replica? Yes. Yes. I've heard of Replica before. I've tried it. It's fascinating. Just like having a conversation with something that feels kind of human, like you would be texting with one of your friends. Right. It's not perfect in very similar ways that ChatGPT is not perfect, right? Like sometimes it hallucinates. Sometimes you're like, what are you even saying? (laughs) You don't sound human. It's very hard to imitate the humanness of, Mm -hmm. you know, like because actually how we interact with each other changes and sometimes we use punctuation and sometimes we don't sometimes we use capitalization sometimes that's what kind of makes us human our ability to like do errors in grammar on purpose Mm -hmm. chatbots are not great at that but they'll become better well now the bots are they have the ability to essentially learn you in real time exactly Um, really fascinating stuff i'm Curious to see what this leads to, but it's also a little terrifying because of the whole loneliness epidemic that's going on. So is this going to just cause people to be even more isolated and, you know, just stay at home and chat with their AI partner? (laughs) I honestly don't know that that's a bad thing, though, in the absence of enough qualified therapists, Mm -hmm. you know? 
I could see it for um, therapy. I just worry about like intimate relationships where people are forming partnerships with AI girlfriends, boyfriends, non-binary folks, as they were mentioning in this article, because there is still that human element that we need, right? Where we actually need physical touch. We need to physically see people. There needs to be that yeah, expression of hormones sure. between each other. So, And how long will it take for us to biohack even that? <laughs> I know. Oh, my gosh. What do they call it? Like a <laughs> smellogram or something like that. Oh, my yeah. Gosh. Oh, it's, you unreal. can see it. Yeah. And I, you know what I'm going to call out? Have you seen the movie Her? No, I haven't. Oh, my God. You have to go back and watch this. Joaquin, okay. Joaquin Phoenix falls okay. in love with Scarlett Johansson, who is literally just a voice. She oh, is, I she remember is an the previews. Voice. Yeah, I remember the preview, the trailer for this. I never watched it, though. Okay. You I'll should. It it's list. actually, it's pretty good. But it, okay. is, it is one of those, like, futuristic scenarios where you could see actually happening. Okay. Black Mirror-esque. Um, <laughs> a little bit. But again, you're like, is this a bad thing? I don't know. It's fascinating. Okay. okay. Intimate relationships with AI chatbots. I love how that was number that one. On my 2024 <laughs> list. Goodness. But I could see it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Prediction number two. You know I'm going to love this one. It says threads will overtake X. <laughs> That's right up your alley. <laughs> right up my alley. I would like to say, just to toot my own horn a little bit, I re- I've written two Cranes op-eds about threads or about mm-hmm. Twitter and then about threads. The first one, when Musk overtook the company, I predicted that it was going to die a slow death <laughs> and that his ego was going to overtake it. And sure. that has proven prescient and then when threads launched and it got so much launched from meta and it got so much play overnight i said Mm -hmm. that it wasn't going to kill x but it would gain enough popularity to bifurcate the political environment to where the most of the people on twitter on x at the Mm -hmm. time it was still twitter were going to be like right-wing libertarian musk lovers and a lot of the people on threads would become kind of the more left-wing sure or even centrist to be honest i don't Mm -hmm. even know if everyone there is super left-wing but the kind of anti-musk anti-x people sure and again that seems to be what is happening threads has not overtaken x yet but it's going to i just don't i i what i guess what i'm what i want to caveat in the asterisk i would say in my prediction on this is that Mm -hmm. it's not so much that threads is going to become what twitter once was that's the thing it's not that threads is going to replace the kind of centrality of that real-time microblogging experience that Twitter once was because sure. I think that now it's just not bifurcated. It's distributed. Now it's mm-hmm. just distributed between Threads, X, Mastodon, mm. all these other platforms. It's kind of, it didn't kill Twitter. It just now we've got so many more options. There's not right. a centralized place. But right. I, I would still say that Threads is the is the has the best chance of recreating that current events milieu that Twitter used to be. What do you think? I can see it. I don't know. I just I guess the hype of threads just kind of I don't know. It, it kind of quickly diminished for me. So I barely go on there. I only go on threads when I get a notification in, in Instagram. Earlier today I saw your I don't even do you call it a thread? Is that yeah. like is that the equivalent of a tweet? I saw yeah. your thread. The about... language is not great. I'll just yeah. just say that. It's... Go to go to see my thread on threads is no. Yeah. You, you did it not sounds... think that through. 
odd. I don't know. But I saw, I got a notification on Instagram that you had posted about this being the year that people <laughs> stop gawking and start committing to using the platform. Oh, I said and, that they should stop gawking at Twitter while using threads. That that drives me insane. Like, Makes sense. Makes can't sense. we just use threads and have fun here and jo- enjoy our lives and not yeah. constantly have to like look back at the cesspool that x is becoming (laughs) right let it be a separate thing yeah i get that yeah i guess i just need to spend some more time on threads and and i need to adjust my i guess i don't even know how you curate your 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 feed that's the part that kind of throws me off a little bit but it's also in a way kind of exciting you know yeah you can curate it i mean who you follow and since you can now follow just a or read just a following list. That's one way to curate it. I do think that eventually having lists like Twitter had lists, we can follow different kinds of users would make it so much more valuable. I think it needs to speed up. It's still real slow comparatively right now. There's a lot of things that would make it better, but I'm still bullish on its overall applicability. But I think the thing that makes me most nervous Besides for just it being another platform in Meta's universe, which, Mm -hmm. you know, Meta has a questionable track record at best for ethical social media decisions. Right. Is that they keep trying to come out and saying, we don't want to be a news platform. We don't want to be a news platform. You literally built a current events platform. How do you do current events without doing news? Right. And it's all because they don't want the the editorial responsibility of being a news platform. And I understand Which they that. got burned. They've gotten burned in the past with trying to do... That's what they did with the Facebook news feed a right. long time ago, right? Right. It makes sense. I understand. I definitely get it. But yeah, to your point, there needs to be something there. Right now, for me, just like going to a, a timeline to scroll, it just... It just doesn't appeal to me. And I still haven't figured out the best use case for it for me with all the things I have going on. I can see clear use cases for YouTube or TikTok, right? It's mostly entertainment. Well, now it's now a giant drop shipping cesspool, but that's neither here nor there. And (laughs) Twitter is still just Twitter. I don't even know. I mean, it's to me, Twitter is still very news driven. So people are still having conversations. And I find, I almost feel like there's been a surge in Twitter use because I... I just go to Twitter when I want to know what's going on on Instagram and TikTok and YouTube because someone's talking about it there and they're just reposting on Twitter. So yeah, Threads has a bunch of that too. If you're creating something that's kind of the the conversational medium about culture, then of mm-hmm. course it's going to be reacting to where culture happens, whether that's on YouTube of course. or Instagram or whatever, right? Of course, of course. I mean, I think that the way that you use X is very community driven. And until that community is on threads, it's going to be less appealing. And until to your point, you can find just that community and it's not mm-hmm. just the noise of everybody. Right. Then it's going to be less appealing. I think that makes right. a lot of sense. Even just being able to click on some topics in threads would be nice. That's it. Hey, <laughs> you can now you've heard about the hashtags without the hashtag on threads. I now? have not. How does that work? So they they very recently launched topics Okay. Which is like hashtags, only you can you can use the hashtag logo in the functionality to basically link it back to those conversations without it needing an actual hashtag. And okay. it doesn't necessarily need like you can make it a phrase if you wanted to. Like it can be the topic can be basically any number of things. But obviously, there's an incentive to do bigger topics that people are actually talking about. But that is sure. a way to find other people. So in theory, Black Twitter, for example, can kind of mm-hmm. recreate that experience on threads using topics now. Okay. I'll so explore it. something to consider. I don't know if anyone's yeah. actually doing that or not, but yeah. I've seen 
a lot of tech folks doing that, a lot of author people that I follow are doing that. So there is community being created there in mm-hmm. interesting ways. It's just, it's not perfect yet, but it's getting better. Sure. Okay. That's promising. Yeah. All right. Number three, Google search results will get worse due to AI generated content. I was actually a little skeptical about this one. Mm. I totally understand why our like immediate reaction would be like, oh shit, AI can get can make all kinds of garbage mm-hmm. and dump it onto the web. Sure. But I actually feel like Google, I don't want to say is smarter than that, but they've been dealing with garbage websites and garbage content that's trying to game the system for a really long time. Right. I mean, I guess the differentiated part of it now is it can look much more legitimate. But I don't know. I just don't feel like generative content is there enough to outsmart Google yet. And on the top of the fact that Google's building its own, you know, generative AI capability to be able to kind of match it. I don't know. I'm not confident that it is able to kind of fool Google search Mm -hmm. yet. Maybe, Maybe it can down the road, but I feel like in 2024, maybe not yet. What do you think? Yeah, I don't see that happening. Also, there have been a lot of significant changes with SEO um, and the way that Google is approaching SEO, search engine optimization. And to your point, I think they're smarter than that. And I also think that we're going to see them starting to implement a lot of their AI-generated tools into the search engine too. I mean, we already, you probably have already seen them. Like when you search for something, you ask a question at the top, there's like a quick summary and it's, this is AI generated. So yeah, I, I I don't, I don't see that happening. At least not, I don't know. I mean, I feel like you would have to really outsmart Google to make this, for them to understand that what you were building has the kind of search authority for it to make that big of a difference. Yeah. You know, I agree. I agree. Number four is audiences will get their news from individual people rather than the news companies they work for. Duh. We've been talking about this for (laughs) months. But also, this is is a trend that I've seen around for years. Maybe since 2016, 2017, Mm -hmm. journalists have been striking on their own, building their own audiences, really. I think we've got, they've got more tools to do it now. They've got more platforms to do it on. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the kind of rise of the creator economy and how it's really starting to overtake traditional news outlets. So I think that we're at a tipping point for this, but this has definitely been something that's been going on a long time. Absolutely. Five, there will be less oversharing online. This is one Hmm. that I really want to chat through because I did not think about this, but I think there actually, there's an interesting case to be made here. But traditionally, how we thought of social media behavior is you know, it's everything from babies to breakups to what I what did I do for lunch to what's yeah. trending, you know, like you kind of think about the the phrase that we've used for many years is the highlight reel of someone's life. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. They're basically saying it, it used to be fun to do this and it's not anymore. And there's a lot of reasons for this. One is that millennials who kind of dro- drove this trend are burned out from doing this. And also now they have kids and maybe they're not as comfortable with doing that, you know, when they have kids, which is interesting. I know that I I stopped doing oversharing online when I started having kids because I wasn't comfortable posting about them without their permission. Right, right. I have a lot of a lot of friends like that who millennial friends who are very similar. One of my friends, she has a very small exclusive group that she'll like share out pictures of her kids with even on Instagram. You know how you can kind of create your 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 friend circles, but won't share their faces online. So I get that. I think that's become more commonplace. 
But the overarching topic or this overarching point of there is going to be less oversharing online, I don't think that's the case. (laughs) Maybe as it relates to kids and millennials, but overall, no. I feel like I've started to see more about people than I've wanted to, to know. And, you know, people are very quick to like whip out their cameras and post something online. And so, you know, moments that previously we wouldn't have seen are now being recorded and quickly shared. Yeah. So... But I don't think, I guess the distinction there is, are they sharing about their personal lives or are they just sharing? Because if you're, if you're capturing what you're seeing or if you're talking about current events, to me, that's mm-hmm. not as personal. And when I think of oversharing, I think about spilling my guts about what's happening in my personal life or being really vulnerable online. And maybe to the point you were making earlier, we're going to start covering online too. We don't need yeah. everyone to know every single vulnerable piece of our identity. Yeah, I I guess I think there I think that there will continue to be a trend of like influencers because on one hand, last year, the word was authenticity, right? The word of the year. And then on the other hand, we're saying people are going to overshare less. And I just don't think that's the case because I feel like I'm seeing more personal stories, you know, people sharing things that have happened to them throughout dating or relationships or, you know, people have been very open about like their fitness and weight loss journeys and things like that. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. I think the average person will probably share less. I, I know I certainly have. I didn't share hardly anything last year compared to previous years. So I get Same. that. Yeah. I found myself sharing about my personal life much less. Some yeah. of that is because I've kind of had to, as a personality, as an yeah. influencer, you know, curate what I'm actually talking about in terms of what people follow me for. But some of it sure. is just I'm burned out of, oh, now I'm doing this family event and I'm obligated to tell other people about it. Can I just enjoy it? for what it is. Right, exactly, exactly. So I think you're right. It's like a bifurcation between the people who make their living in the creator economy and kind of like out in the open versus just kind of the average internet user. Exactly, yep. Speaking of the average internet user, uh, prediction Mm. six here is people will use social media more for direct messages rather than posting for everyone. Again, this feels like something that's been happening a long time. Yeah, stories on Instagram. Stories, but also just like if you think about Snapchat, which is hugely popular with younger people, that's not really public. It's all about like group messages, direct messages. It's all about like individual interaction. So I think there has been this kind of, I'll call it unbundling of social sharing into more individual private spaces Mm -hmm. for at least since 2016. Again, yeah. so great prediction that's already kind of been (laughs) happening. For sure. Um. Seven, people will be more uncomfortable being recorded in public and posted to social media without their consent. Again, yep. no shit. Yes. <laughs> Hasn't this already been happening? It it definitely has been. I think, I do think we, we may see more people taking advantage of like public recording and filming laws. So that might yeah. be interesting. The question for our listeners is, are you aware of the recording laws in your state? Right. A lot of people aren't. Because- Some of them have one party consent, which means you can record whatever and it's legally admissible and the other person doesn't have to consent to being recorded. And some, like in Illinois, are two party consent state. Yep. Where you actually can't do that. It's illegal to record somebody without their consent. Right. So know the legal environment you are operating (laughs) in, especially, especially if you are an activist or you are, you know, in part of a marginalized community where recording something might be honestly, the difference between life or death for someone. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
All right, last one, which I'm just going to call, like, why did this make it onto this story? <laughs> and it's definitely a representation of the fact that internet culture is culture. Yeah. Gen Alpha will create more slang. Again, no shit. These like... young people, they're, they're going to they're gonna create slang. And why is this oh on an internet God. trends prediction? It's because the internet is where it will surface and people will laugh at it, slash adopt it, and blah, 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 blah. I just think that's, again, just more of an indication to me that internet culture is where culture happens. Yeah, I mean, kids are all, we did it. We had our version of slang. Our parents. Of course we did. Do you know that whatever, one thing that we did at our New Year's party, you will enjoy this, is went back and we always do this neon dance party with our kids on New Year's Mm -hmm. Eve. That's super fun. We get the glow sticks and we put on dance music. We turn off all the lights and we just, it's super fun. We've done it for five years now. And the kids enjoy it. This year, I put on a 2000s dance party list. So basically okay. music that was that was Love like it. late 90s, 2000s. And do you remember when like a bunch of rappers used to put like extra R's in things? Like yes. Nelly's hot and her. Like her. <laughs> hot and her. Yes, of course, of course. I was just like, why, why do people do that? That was such a the, the dumbest thing. Culture. And yet, exactly. Culture is going to culture. So yeah. that was just a, another a, a reminder to me that we were young once and didn't think things were weird. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are always pockets of of these things that that surface. And I think at least in when it comes to like music, it's often an opportunity for artists to kind of like highlight some pocket of their culture that hasn't been amplified, yeah. right? And so yeah, history repeats itself. I actually think it's really cool, like how language evolves and gets remixed and gets and new connotations get added or taken yep. away. I actually think that's really fascinating. And then if you think about the application of that to what happens online and how that gets translated into a digital environment, either mm-hmm. in text or speech, so interesting to me. Definitely. Did you see that a few few weeks ago? There was a uh, quiz that was going around on the Washington Post about what age you are at work, and it was it asked you <laughs> no. like five or six questions about what you like your work habits, okay. and, like how do you respond to an email, what do you say, like those kinds of things, and then gave you a score about what generation this. you were. Like you're fifty percent millennial, you're twenty percent Gen Z. You're de- interesting. Again, the Albert arbitration around that is kind of bullshit to me because it's like what makes something a quote millennial trend versus a quote gen z trend feels pretty arbitrary right but i will be proud to say despite my age i think i was like 60 percent gen z isn't that fascinating i was like 60 percent gen z 40 (laughs) percent millennial something like that and zero percent boomer huh i mean anyway go find it's on the washington post if you're interested yeah yeah i i think that I wonder how much the internet and and just exposure to social has influenced that. If we didn't have as much access to social, would would our results be drastically different, right? Exactly. That's why internet culture is so fascinating to me. Because like 50 years ago, we would have grown up with that culture. And then that probably would have just been our culture. Right. Right. Maybe Maybe with the exception of what you read in books, kind of movies, TV, mass media, which obviously you know, affects you, but not to the speed and, you know, influence, I think, of the internet. Absolutely. A good reminder for people, there's no excuse to not gain exposure to diverse 
mixes of people. It's literally at your fingertips. She brought it back. She brought <laughs> it's, it's it back right to there. her work. It's right there. <laughs> Always. <laughs> like, it's right there. Love it. You don't have to do much. All right. Cool. Let's, let's end with our good things for the week. Let's do it. What's your good news you're bringing to us this week, Adriel? Well, um, in 2024, there is expected to be a breakout in delivery drones. So I feel like we've been oh. hearing about these delivery drones for years now. I know that Amazon's been talking about leveraging them, UPS and some other package delivery providers. But we are expecting to see that there will be more or that will go beyond just sort of these like pilot test stages. And to me, it's really exciting because it there's a lot of, of there are a lot of reports out there talking about how this can actually reduce carbon emissions. So instead of having all yeah. these deliveries by cars and trucks and buses and planes, we can start using drones to deliver them, ah. which can also result in faster delivery as well, less possibility of, you know, our delivery drivers and packagers being injured and, you know, all that stuff. So Exciting yeah, stuff. I, there's a great quote in this article. Your grandchildren will wonder why anyone used a multi-ton vehicle to deliver a five-pound five package. Oh, my goodness. No, I thought that was good. Valid question. <laughs> like, That's good. Goodness. I love that. Why, why did I do, do wonder that? the knock-on effects of this. Mm. Are we going to have more noise pollution with drones mm. constantly flying around our heads? Or, sure. like, how are we going to have to package things so that they will be safe in this kind of transportation environment, is this going to increase our need for packaging? Right, right. Because we don't want things dropping out of the sky and, you know, clunking on someone's head. Yeah, for example, exactly. Right? Is there going to be like the first time someone gets a concussion because something falls from a <laughs> drone onto their right, head? Right. What kind of regulations are going to be needed in order to carry these things through the sky? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to be tracking this one. And uh, if there are any significant updates, I will certainly report back. Yeah, that's a really interesting story. And my, I will say that I, I also had an unintended story that is pretty surprising mm-hmm. from last year. My, our producer actually pointed this out that we missed this story mid last year, but I think it's worth calling out. My good news is that apparently Americans haven't been this happy at work since the 1980s. Huh. What? Interesting. I know. According to conference board data released last year, a job satisfaction is actually at a 35-year high as of 2023. Hmm. It complicates the narrative around quiet quitting or putting in the bare minimum. I think that a lot of things could underlie this. One being, it's actually pretty great to work from home. Mm-hmm. You know, we talk yeah. about the benefits to our own individual. That could be actually making people happier. Oh, shit, I don't have to spend an hour commuting. Oh, that's pretty great. Right. There's been a strong labor market, so I've got competition around being able to say no to terrible work environments. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of this is still post-pandemic effects, but super fascinating to think about the satisfaction that we have with our jobs, according to this data, I think is a little unexpected given the negative narrative that we always hear about workplaces. Yeah, absolutely. Exciting stuff. Exciting stuff. Yeah. What do you, what do you credit this with? I think people are... Even though they need to do, I I think leaders and organizations need to listen more. I think they have started to listen to employees. I think there also have been some standards around benefits 
as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think our benefits have significantly changed. Speaking of benefits, did you hear about, and I guess this could be another one good thing, that Medicare has expanded their mental health coverage as of January 1st of this year. So that's really exciting news. But things like that, you know, for employees, you know, you have those EAP benefits and things. I think that's really helpful. And yeah, I I think workplace flexibility, while there's still work to be done, has improved significantly. (laughs) Oh, 100%. I should say that while this data came out mid last year, it was actually Mm -hmm. collected in November 2022. So actually, all the things we saw in 2023 wouldn't have affected this. But Regardless, I think it is a little bit of a, you know, counter narrative to what we were hearing around work, even then. Mm -hmm. Um, There is some caveats to this. Women were less satisfied at work than men. I don't think it's going to surprise you. It's because of, (laughs) you know, pay gaps, benefits gaps, the things that, you know, traditionally go along with gender disparities in the workplace. Sure. And they did call out those with hybrid work arrangements were happier than ones that had to do either fully in person or fully remote. Surprise. Goes back to what we were saying. <laughs> Connection yes. matters, but also flexibility matters. You can give people yes. both and do it in a way that is beneficial. Yep. Good stuff. All right. All right. Good times. Hey, that was a great first episode for the year. What do you yeah. think? I, I Looking forward to what's to come. I know we've got some guests coming on this year and it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster. I think you said it. Definitely. This is going to be hopefully the year of answers. Maybe not the answers we want, but <laughs> it'll be interesting <laughs> to explore at least. <laughs> it will be. And you will be able to hear all about the week's news and what you should think about it. <laughs> or maybe we'll ask you what we should think about it, depending on what it is every week right here on the Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please do check us out on Instagram. Go follow us there at leader, S-H underscore T and go to leadership.show to send us a note. Tell us how you're liking the show. What else do you want to see us cover? What are you interested about? Always interested in some listener feedback and we're hoping that you have a great, great 2024. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Leadership. Our producer is Dave Sandell. Thinking about starting your own podcast? Connect with him at davesandell.com. You can find more information about Caleb and his work and even hire him to speak on change leadership at calebgardner.com or 18coffees.com and find his book, No Point B, Rules for Leading Change in the New Hyperconnected, Radically Conscious Economy, wherever books are sold. You can find more about me, Adrielle, and my diversity, equity, and inclusion work at adrielleparker.com. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel at youtube.com slash for more candid discussions on DEI and for more insight on inclusive leadership. <laughs>